Place it comfortably. Well, welcome everyone to another session. And we're gathered again to um, support each other in our practice. So we receive support from others and we give support to others. And we do it mutually. Because it'd be really hard to do something like this on your own, I'd imagine. You need the structure and we, we all need the support of others to sort of just hold us in this, in this moment together. It's a very important time. Each session is a very important time. What I'd like to talk about is a, a beginning theme um, in this session and the title is um, Embodied Presence. And I'll remind you of some lines from the Haku and Zenji Song of Zazen which you probably recited this morning. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. And those, they're very important words. And they, they're words which point to, what should we say, the fulfilment of practice. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be able to just see our, our practice is very, very simple. It's just to sit, really. Um, shikantaza or just sitting is the ultimate type of um, Zen practice. It's not trying to achieve anything. It's just actually being, being without trying to achieve anything at all because there's nothing actually to achieve. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of paradox. Well, it seems like a paradox, but it's not at all. But what often happens, um, people taking up meditation practice or mindfulness, at some point or another, um, after the honeymoon period's worn off, um, it seems to be either boring or it causes irritation, or it appears to cause irritation. And that's often a point where people will stop practicing. But even experienced practitioners can come across those two two states of mind as well. And it's very important to understand them, because if you don't understand it, you go, what what the the little voice inside says is, um, oh, meditation's boring. Meditation makes me feel irritated. Uh And then we give up. But what, in my perspective, is happening is that we're experiencing irritability in our life and we're experiencing boredom in our life and we're missing the point of being alive and the extraordinariness of it each moment. And all that mindfulness is doing is, is shedding light on the fact of how irritable we are in our life and how bored we are. Right? But we blame it on mindfulness, right? We blame it on meditation. It's just uncovering the, the sense of the symptoms of dissatisfaction which are in our life anyway, that's all. Mm-hmm. And if we understand it that way, then we don't give up <coughs> meditating, we go, ah, actually, meditation, that the light of mindfulness is actually giving me a, a clearer insight into how I actually live my life. Mm-hmm. If we can see it that way, then we'll, we'll keep on going. Mm-hmm. If we see it the former way, we'll give up. And um, 
no doubt all of us to some extent might experience some irritability and boredom through the next few days. But if you do, I invite you to see it in that light rather than going to this automatic place that meditation is boring. Life is never boring. Um, to expand on this um, point of embodiment, um, I want to read you something briefly and uh, it's one of our readings in the uh, Ordinary Minds in School in, in Sydney and I'd actually, I, I thought you had it as a reading um, but apparently you don't and you could very easily um, just download it from our website and include it in your reading, I, I would encourage you to. Anyway, I'll read it to you. It's called The Disembodied and Embodied State by Will Johnson. What passes as normal in the world at large is what I've come to call the disembodied state. There are two primary characteristics that define this state. In the first place, there is very little actual felt awareness in the body. The second characteristic that typifies the disembodied state is the involuntary internal monologue of the mind. The disembodied state is a function of the relative absence of bodily sensations and the overwhelming presence of this internal voice. You are probably quite familiar with this aspect of mind. It provides a running commentary on your life and leans towards judgments and criticisms of self and others, hopes, fears, desires and aversions. Its speculations are almost entirely about the past and the future. The present moment possess virtually no reality to the disembodied mind. When we are lodged in the fantasy of past and future time, however, we are, not, we are literally not present. And one of the main features of the disembodied state is the forfeiture of any sense of real presence. Lost in our minds, we have little awareness of our body sensations. Neither are we very aware of sounds, nor what I even suggest, sights. Within the world of disembodiment, our concept of self is created through identifying with the speaker of the monologue who we name I. But by identifying ourselves in this way, we seriously limit our full potential as human beings. Instead, we content ourselves with a diminished awareness of body and with a mind that is limited to its most superficial dimensions. Fortunately, the relationship between the body and the mind that so typifies the disembodied state can be reversed. To initiate this reversal, we have to begin by kindling an awareness of the tactile sensations of the body. We're able to do this simply by turning our attention to the body and observing its sensational presence exactly as it is in this moment. By broadening your focus, you can expand your field of awareness to include 
the, the sensational presence of the entire body, the whole of the body can ultimately be experienced as a unified field of shimmering, tactile sensations. Starting out from a numbed place in which you have little awareness of body, you come to a much more vibrant place in which tactile sensations can be felt to exist everywhere. Within this condition of embodiment, the mind undergoes an equivalent transformation. Awareness of tactile presence of the body lodges us completely within the present moment. The sensations of the body are so evanescent, changing and flickering on and off at such rapid speeds that the only time we can have any real awareness of them is right now. The internal monologue of the mind, however, is almost entirely tied up in ruminations about the past and the future. It cannot be lost in the involuntary monologue of the mind and be aware of the body sensations simultaneously. By shifting your focus and kindling an awareness of your body sensations, you can effectively cancel out the mind's ability to indulge in past and future fantasies. At times, this may even manifest as the monologue completely shutting itself off. As this superficial dimension of mind dissolves away, much deeper levels of consciousness and being are free to come to the surface of awareness. It's a bit like the layer of clouds dissolving to reveal the deep expanse of the sky and the warmth of the sun. This deeper dimension of the mind that the embodied state naturally reveals is extremely open and spacious. It too feels enormously wholesome and natural. Mm -hmm. They're good words. Really go, to the, really go to the heart of it. Really go to the point of it. And so, in its simplicity, you know, when we sit there, upright on a cushion, you know, head erect, body symmetrical, breathing, really, ultimately, we just have to be present to our body. And the body is in one sense, one person I heard recently said that the body is the gateway to the awakened life. But I, and that's true, but I'd also like to add that it's also the territory as well. Mm -hmm. Because in the experience of just being this body, rather than ruminating over thoughts, eventually if you sit with this body, there's a connectedness happens with life. And it's just an organic connectedness which is there from the very beginning. Just like all the flowers and the trees have an organic connectedness with one another and a symbiosis with one another, they depend on one another. We, when we're in the body, we, we get a sense of that same connectedness with everything else and the giving and receiving that comes with it. And that is the lotus land. <laughs> That's the lotus land. Now, as a way of understanding um, the practice of mindfulness or the practice of presence and disembodied, um, mindfulness is a term which, by its very nature, seems to be about the mind. Mm -hmm. But as we're seeing in this talk about embodiment, 
it's mindful not to inquire about anything intellectually. It's just being mindful of the body. That's the first foundation of the four foundations of mindfulness in, in Buddhism. And in a sense, it's the be-all and the, and the end-all of it. Um, just having that foundation of being in the body and staying there. Now, mindfulness, um, as I've been discussing with a, a colleague of mine, another psychologist and also a, a Buddhist practitioner, and we're, we're um, putting together a... Um, a workshop to do in San Francisco next year at a psychology conference. And because we've both got quite an extensive Buddhist background, we want, to, we want to approach it in a way which sort of cuts through a lot of the science of it and really comes back to people recognising that, that mindfulness is just a natural phenomena. Mm-hmm. People even think, I've even said it too, do you know, that mindfulness comes from Buddhism. <coughs> Well, yes and no. Mm -hmm. All animals have mindfulness. My dog's got mindfulness. Your cat's got mindfulness. All human beings have natural mindfulness where they can just be tuned into their environment in the present moment. But what Buddhism has done, perhaps more than any other spiritual discipline, um, is really cultivated mindfulness in the service of um, waking up. As a way of understanding this, if you go back to maybe Psychology 101, do you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Came across that in psychology. Well, I'll remind you or refresh you or let you know of what it is again. But it's a useful little kind of um, uh, formula to help us understand the practice of mindfulness and, and embodiedness. Um, and Maslow's uh, idea of a human being or an animal, and so we've got basic needs that need to be um, fulfilled, fulfilled. Um, and then when they're ful- fulfilled, there's another set of needs come into play, and another set, and another set, and another set. And of course, you, you have to meet all of them at some level, but other higher needs emerge as the lower ones are fulfilled. And the first ones are just basic physiological needs that we have along with all animals. We need food, you know, water, um, warmth, shelter to survive. Mm-hmm. And when those needs are met, we also have safety needs. Right? So we need to be safe from predators, we need to be safe from any kind of dangers in life. And as human beings, we need to feel safe in the sense of some kind of sense of law and order and not too much anarchy. Um, and uh, so we're safe from other, other people often, you know, um, not necessarily um, other species. And when those, and also the, the emotions that come in to that level, at the safety level, probably basic fight-flight emotions of um, aggression and fear, you know, so aggression to, to actually hunt for prey, Right, and, and fear to run away from predators. And uh, when, you, when you reflect on it, when you think of that, that experience, that, that uh, dance that's played out every moment in nature, it's happening right now out there, do you know, of the hunter and the hunted, you know, the, 
the predator and the prey. There must be at each, at each time that actually occurs, you can imagine there must be an exquisite sense of mindfulness in that moment on both of those in both of those uh, ends of a pair, you know, the, the hunted and the hunted. Right? One, one's completely alert, so it gets its need for food met, and the other is completely alert to try to get away and live another day. Mm-hmm. Kind of exquisite intimacy in that moment. So the heightened awareness on both sides, every time that happens. Um, but it's not mindfulness for its own sake, it's mindfulness to achieve an outcome, mm-hmm. to get food, live another day, or to survive another day. And then, so we've got physiological needs, safety needs, and then the next set of needs that emerge in Maslow's hierarchy um, are love and belongingness needs. Need to be part of a family, you know, part of a group, um, part of a tribe, part of a culture that you identify with. And we, we have needs of um, affection, love, giving love, um, receiving love is all a part of that need structure which is there. And that, that's a normal part of being a mammal. I don't know if reptiles have it so much, but certainly all mammals have that need to be met and closeness. And maybe the emotions that, that come into play around that, apart from love and affection, the positive ones, the negative ones perhaps are longingness and sadness and grieving, you know, when, those, when the, that, that connectedness or that belonging gets disrupted in some way. But they're important needs for us too. And then the next set of needs up, there's physiological, safety, love and belonging, and the next one is self-esteem needs. And for human beings, that means that maybe is where we start to shift and be different from other animals in the evolutionary tree. But human beings seem to have a need for um, self-esteem, um, for all positive reasons too, to have a sense of, um, it's in two ways, to have a sense of self-mastery, so that you can actually control and achieve things and, and do things well, like in, in your job or in um, an art form that you might have. And so that that brings an inner sense of contentment. And it's also part of human beings that we also um, seek status as well. We want to to get self-esteem through other people recognising, you know, how good we might be at something. So we do university degrees and et cetera, et cetera. And it's got its healthy aspect and its unhealthy aspect. We can get preoccupied with it. But then the next one is the interesting one in terms of practice. And uh, so let's say, it's not as though we get all of those needs met entirely, you know, and then the next one pops up, but they kind of like they get met enough, you know, for you to move on to the higher level. And so the last level that he had is um, self-actualization, which in Buddhist terms, you know, you could call the awakened life, which is a, a very, a very deep sense of fulfilment. But what's interesting about this last one, and that that's where, to highlight the the point I'm making, is mindfulness 
as it's been cultivated through Buddhist practice and Zen practice, it's cultivated to actualize this last need, right, to awake. Mm-hmm. And that's really its whole point. Mm-hmm. And in its mindfulness can be used in all those other forms and in secular forms it can be used to improve your performance in, in a company so you make more profits for the company or to run faster and that's all fine but in its dharma context it's really at its essence it's, it's this last need of self-actualization, like a deeper sense of fulfilment and contentment um, that can emerge <clears throat> and what comes with self-actualization or realization or awakening or you know, maturing through Zen practice or any religion for that matter is that it's a state where uh, you don't need the other, the other needs quite so much. You're not driven by them. They're still there, and they still need to be met in some way, but you're no longer driven by them at all. Like, you're not driven to have to prove you're good at something. You're not driven to prove that you're lovable. You're not driven to prove, to show that you're successful in the world. It's like, it doesn't really matter that much anymore. So that's, that's what actually happens when we mature through Zen practice. Yeah, those needs are there. But they don't, they don't drive our life in any, more, in our, in any way uh, like they did before. Put in Buddhist psychology, the grasping and aversion is dropped away. And the ego identification is dropped away. It's nothing more to prove, really. <coughs> except to just um, really appreciate the fact of being alive and the fact of being alive with other beings that are alive and other things that are alive. It's very place, it's a lotus land, it's very body, the Buddha. Mm-hmm. So it's through just sitting is, is both at the same time the practice that leads to the awakened life and is the awakened life at the same time, as Dogen would have, would have mentioned to us if he was here. He said, Sazen is not a pathway to enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Interesting, eh? Because <laughs> just sitting here like this is enlightenment. It is the awakened life, whether we fully realise it or not. Maybe. But it is. There's nowhere to go but here. <coughs> and if we sit in this embodied state, like I was saying in the beginning, uh, if we sit in it long enough, we don't, we don't just sit here as a, as a separate entity. If we just sit in this embodied state rather than being in the mind, maybe suddenly, maybe gradually, usually gradually, it just becomes more and more apparent that we're just organically connected into everything else. Mm-hmm. through our breath, breathing in and out, the outside coming in, the inside going out through our skin. Everything is connected to everything else. 
And with that realization, what happens is a lot of a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear drops away, as it reminds us in the Heart Sutra. Mm-hmm. Great fear of death drops away because we don't really die; we just move from one form to another. Mm-hmm. In a sense, we'll be reborn again, not as a another Jeff or Tom or Bill, but we'll be reborn. Just like we're reborn in each moment. And to practice realising that this very body is the Buddha is to sit in meditation as we're doing until that becomes clearer and clearer and also because we're a group practicing together to realize that this very place is the lotus land is actually to 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 see everyone else that you're practicing with as a buddha and you're going to serve them and you're also a buddha too that's going to be served to see each other in that light, to see that there's more to practice than just what I'm going to achieve out of doing a session. It's more like the spirit of it is, is what are all of us are going to, what is it that all of us are going to um, not achieve, but what, what, is, what is the group sense of fulfilment that we could all do from doing these three or four days together? rather than, than necessarily an individual focus. That's, that's the spirit um, in which to approach it. Okay, thanks very much everyone.